Built Not Born, episode 55. I'm Joe Chicarone. Today's guest is Corey Yasuno. Corey Yasuno is the author of the book Autism with a Side of Sushi, a story of a mother and her son on the spectrum. In our conversation today, Corey and I discuss what it was like being a first-time mom, learning how to navigate life with a child on the autism spectrum. Corey is as real and honest and open as anyone I've ever discussed this topic with. She shares the good, the bad, the struggles of what it was like learning that her son Daniel was diagnosed on the autism spectrum while being pregnant with her second child. Corey is a fascinating person. She immigrated to the United States from Japan at the age of five. She was a graduate of Georgetown University. She graduated law school. She worked for National Geographic and the Discovery Health Channel. Corey tells us what it's like to watch her autistic son be bullied in school. Why Corey says awareness is not enough. And the reason why she wrote the book to help and empower other parents that are raising children on the autism spectrum and letting them know they are not alone and there's a way forward. So, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the follow button. We got a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Corey Yasuno, author of Autism with a Side of Sushi. And remember, life is built, not born. Corey Yasuno, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. We are excited to have you. Corey, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? I'm a straight up, stay at home, regular run of the hill mom. That's it. I have two kids. I live in the suburbs. I have no special skills. We have this joke in our family. I'm just Corey, whereas all the my in-laws and my husband, they all have letters after their name. It's like lawyer, doctor. I'm just Corey. I think you're underselling your skills. First off, I want to get into your story. I want to get into your book, okay. Autism with a Side of Sushi. Everything I read about it and everything I listened about it and all the podcasts you're on, you have a phenomenal story and I think you can help a lot of people. I want to get into all of that and your journey and lessons learned. But before we do, I want to start back all the way from the beginning. Where did you grow up? So I grew up, I was born in Japan and I grew up in Kobe, which is, I don't know, a million years ago, there was a big earthquake. So people might know Kobe. I lived in Japan until I was five years old. And then my dad got a job in the States. He worked at a liquor company and they had a job opportunity for him in the States. So at five years old, my brother, who was six and a half, seven, and I moved to the States, not speaking a lick of English. And then we grew up on Long Island. I went to American school all the way up to college and learned how to speak English and get it going. <laughs> What's your first memory of the United States? My first memory of the United States, it was winter. It was so cold. There was a lot of snow and the houses were really big. So in Japan, we lived in apartments and they're small. Japan's a very small country. Each property is really small and most people live in apartment buildings. So when I first came to the States, my 
big memory. Well, I have two big memories. One was that like we were in a house, right? Like a house with like rooms and different levels and basements and attics and a driveway and our own car. And then my mom got a car, it was two cars. Like all that was like mind blowing. But my big memory was that my dad, and I come from a very traditional Japanese family where my mom does the cooking and my dad does the working or whatever. I know it's very sexist and I probably, I'm not woke, but back then that's like how I grew up. And I remember the first night I woke up because of the time change and my dad made me a bowl of ramen noodles. And I remember being like, daddy, you know how to cook? (laughs) (laughs) So I remember that really That's pretty cool. So you go, you come over five years old. That's roughly kindergarten age, six, seven years old. What was it like trying to assimilate into American culture? What's your memories of that? It was so crazy. Talk about culture shock, language shock, so many different things. So for example, I was so little that my mom had to make all my clothes. I don't know if you want to talk about this yet, but it's like the whole experience of being Japanese in this American kindergarten. I was the only Japanese girl in my grade. There must have been might have been one Japanese family other than us. More came later, but in the beginning, it was just us, my brother and me. So like, we didn't speak English. We went to school. I have no idea what these kids are talking about all day. And I know this is once again, a gross generalization, but to me, everybody looked the same because they were all American and I couldn't remember who was who. And I couldn't, I just didn't understand anything. And I got on a bus every day and then I got off the bus every day. One time I didn't even know what my house looked like. I didn't get off at my house. I went all the way to the end of the bus depot. And the bus driver was like, why didn't you get off? And I was like, I couldn't even tell him. I was like, I don't know which one's my house. I don't know. I don't know anything. I was bringing in different things for food for lunch. I was invited to birthday parties. I had to figure out what to bring as a present. Like we didn't do that. I didn't know what American kids liked. I Everything. The only area in which I was truly ahead of the game was my sticker collection. Because in Japan, we had all these like Sanrio, I don't know, maybe I'm dating myself, but like the Hello Kitty and all those Mm -hmm. stickers. And I had a ton because I was from Japan, from the motherland of cuteness. And so I remember like being able to, I had the hottest commodity of stickers. (laughs) One of the things I remember from college is that I took like the sociology class and they mentioned when people go to the Peace Corps, so they change cultures like instantly, the hardest thing to adapt to is the food, right? The food is it's just ridiculously different. Like you go to Africa or you go to Asia or wherever you go to Siberia, the food's so different than when you're used to in Philly or New York. What was it like switching? When you ate at lunch, how different was your breakfast and lunch compared to the kids? Could you, what was it? Like so different. First of all, I didn't like to invite kids to my house because we always had Japanese food. My mom is like the best cook in the whole entire universe. My husband's so lucky because he gets to eat all of his, all of her yummy cooking when she visits. But like, I didn't want to invite anybody to my house because they didn't know what I was eating. And they were like, Ew, what is that? Now all my friends are like, will you please make me some Japanese food? <laughs> but back then, so in the mornings we would have a bowl of rice, a bowl of miso soup, and then some sort of fish protein or vegetable cooked or pickled or whatever. And in America, that's, you have cereal right? Or toast or whatever. So sleepovers were fun because I had no idea what I was in for. And then I, once again, when my friends slept over, I didn't know what to do because we didn't generally have pancakes in the morning. Although I quickly learned how to make them for my friends later on in life. Funny, the food issue was when I was five, my parents told me we went to the burger game or a McDonald's 
I couldn't finish a McDonald's burger. Like, because in Japan, the portions are so much smaller. I was a teeny tiny kid. Now, today, I could probably eat three in one sitting. But like, then I couldn't eat. And the other thing, totally random, I just remembered is that when I was in elementary school, the kids for their birthdays, and I'm sure this happens everywhere, and now I do it too, brought in like cupcakes or munchkins or whatever for the birthdays. Every single time that happened, I would wrap up my portion in a napkin and I would bring it home. And then at, right after I got home from school, I would sit with my mom and we would like unpack it and we would be like, look at this thing that these people brought. It was so different. I don't know. That was just like interesting. Also too, doing some research, I hear you were ahead of the sushi trend in the United States. I hear that uh, for lunchtime, like a young <laughs> grade schooler. Can you tell that story real quick? I thought that was pretty funny. So that's actually how I wrote the book. When I, so like I said, when I first came to the States, one of the things that kids, a lot of Japanese people travel with is called onigiri, which is like, a, like an American sandwich. But we do like rice balled up with seaweed on the outside with something in the middle, like sushi, which is in rolls, but these are like rice balls. So I would, I didn't know about PBJs and whatever. So I would bring that. And then at lunch, like inevitably somebody would be like, ew, what is that? Oh my God, you're eating seaweed? Yuck, gross. And then <laughs> what do you eat? Like raw fish and sushi? Ew, you know, like freak out. Cause I didn't, I'm like, why aren't you eating when you eat, but whatever. And then the, but then I said, fast forward to today, everybody eats sushi and yeah. everybody, yeah. And I'm sure if onigiri were popular, people would eat that too. Nobody would yuck that yum anymore. And so I, the title of my book is Autism with the Side of Sushi, because my hope is that sushi, as it became quite popular and common, yep. the idea of autism would also take traction and become like an everyday kind of thing where nobody has such a strong reaction to it anymore. And so that was the comparison that I made in hopes for awareness and inclusion. And it's just like sushi. It might be foreign to you now, but it's going to be everywhere soon. So now that's a great, thanks for sharing that. Thank, that's a great mindset to have. First off, you said you weren't woke. I think you are. You were eating sushi before all the woke people. So it's, uh, you might be more woke than you think. So that is awesome. Let's get right to it. This is such a deep, important topic. Let's just go right to the book, Autism with a Side of Sushi, a first time mom learning how to navigate life with a child on the autism spectrum. You graduated Georgetown. You worked for National Geographic and the Discovery Health Channel. You had a thriving career. You went to an amazing college. Take us from there. You graduate Georgetown. What's your next step? Graduate Georgetown. I started working for a law firm as a paralegal. And then I decided that I didn't really want to become a lawyer. And so I found that Discovery Health was hiring. And then I jumped there because it sounded like who doesn't want to work for Discovery Channel? It's huge. And then soon thereafter, the dot-com bubble burst and everybody got laid off at Discovery. But then the National Geographic Channel was hiring and it's a small universe. So I jumped from Discovery to National Geographic. And then I was there for the channel for a little bit. And then I worked on their online website. And then I, in the all that time, I met Greg, my husband. We got married in Hawaii, came back home, had some babies. And I stopped working because Daniel was diagnosed as being on the spectrum. And so even before he was diagnosed, I knew I 
wasn't going to go back to work. It was just, there was just too much I had to do. Like I couldn't, I couldn't leave him very long because he was always crying. I could, and, and I was lucky because my husband was, had his own career so I could stay home and take care of Daniel. And it was great because I got him into all these like mommy and me classes and like we had a lot of fun and I was digging it as a mom until I started meeting other moms and joining mom groups. And I start seeing the kids that are the same age as Daniel and they're not all doing Daniel's like just not doing everything the same as everybody else. And as a mom, you see it, you recognize it. And then once you say the words out loud, it's real. So I said it something to my sister-in-law who's a pediatrician and I was like you know Daniel's not pointing and he doesn't really respond when I call his name and she was like yeah that's something you probably want to get checked out and I was like what are you talking about but obviously I knew something was wrong or else why would I mention it to my sister-in-law who's a pediatrician yeah checked out and it was we were right there was a delay and he was having some troubles and that was when our sort of journey began. I was already pregnant with my younger one. And which is probably a good thing because I was like Mm -hmm. such a head case at that point that I didn't really have time to worry about anything for a lot of time. I couldn't worry about Daniel because I had to worry about Seth and then I was pregnant. Yeah. And so we started our autism journey when Daniel was like two Got him some good early intervention, speech therapy, classes. We were really lucky to get a doctor who was very connected in the community. So he also has a son who's on the spectrum and he used to work at NIH. And since we're in the DC area, like we are so lucky to have all this available to us at our fingertips. He said, if I were you, these are the things I would do. 40 hours of speech therapy, get him with kids that are typical as models and get this speech therapist, get a call the county, get their program going. And he gave us a whole bunch of options and names. And once that happened, you just call that person and then you call the next person. So we had what I like to call Team Daniel pretty much set up at the get-go. And that was great. I want to backtrack a little bit. So basically you decided to stop working right after you had Daniel. And then Daniel was a kid. You said start off maybe as colic. So you started seeing he was real colicky. Okay. So colicky. So colicky, which isn't crazy. There's some babies that are, there's definitely babies that cry and that are colicky. But then again, you said you noticed he wasn't pointing, he didn't respond to his name to the point where what? Then you had a, your sister-in-law as a pediatrician. You mentioned that to her. And then she's the one. Is that the first time you thought, wow, there might be something else going on? Is that the first point you thought of that? I think it's the first point that I actually spoke about it to a person that had a medical degree. Okay. I have a best friend that I met from my mother's group. And I was like... I don't know. And I would talk about it with her being like, I wonder, but I wouldn't, I would be like, does your kid do this? Does your kid do that? I never got to the point of being like, do you think there's something different with my child? I was, it was all percolating, but it was obviously getting to a point where like I was concerned enough to mention it to somebody with a medical degree that would be honest with me. And then when you got, she was. Yeah, sure. And help the people right now that are listening to this that may be in your situation that you were years ago, and they're just learning about autism and how to address potential kids on the spectrum. What's the first move you made? Like you went from talking to your sister and all, what's the first call you made or the first step you did after that? Not everybody would do what we did because there actually was an NIH study that was going on identifying children on the spectrum of that age. You went right to there. You went from talking to your sister-in-law to... Like, how did you find that NIH study? 
once I talked to my sister-in-law, I think I went to my pediatrician. Okay. And then I think the pediatrician was like, hey, there's, if you're concerned, this could be an issue. It could be just two or one, 18 months, whatever it was. I don't remember at the time. They said there's this NIH study. Okay. Awesome. Right? And you, you jumped all over it. So I signed up for that. A lot of these things take time. In the inter- I did a lot of things at the same time. So I signed up for the NIH study. I also signed up for, we have an infants and toddlers program run by the county. And so I signed up for that. Basically, my goal was like, I'm going to cast a wide net. And what's the worst that could happen? They could say he's perfectly normal. That's awesome. And if there, if he isn't, then we're covered. Yep. So the infants and toddlers people came to our house. That was a faster process. I think they're, they have that turnaround time that they have to follow. Or so they came to the house, they had specialists come and they were amazing. They were just teaching us how to play with the kids and how to, they were looking for signs that I wouldn't know to look for. And then the NIH study time came up. So we went there and they noticed that Daniel had a delay, a pervasive delay. It's called PDNOS, pervasive developmental delay, not otherwise specified. And I think because Daniel was on the cusp, like he's has some of the attributes of being ASD, but then can also cover it up a little bit. And it's hard, it's hard when they're little. So they gave us the PDD-NOS. They're like, we could be on the spectrum, but he's, he's definitely PDD-NOS. Great. So then from that point, they, so that was the NIH study. They said, talk to this doctor who used to be at the NIH. He now sees exclusively kids on the spectrum And so we called him and in order to get into him, there was like a year delay. It was like a year wait. And so while we were doing that, I was going through the county program. And then once we met with the doctor that we finally were able to see, he recommended this various number of speech therapies, verbal behavior, there's VA, there's floor time. There's so many different therapies. And so he was like, you want 40 hours. And so I spent like the next while researching verbal behavior versus ABA versus floor time. I'm sure there's more now. And then he also said to sign him up for classes and whatever. So I had signed him up for like mommy and me music together, all that stuff. Wow. Let me hit pause there for a second. So it's so much great information. So basically just to synthesize, when you found out that, that something may be going on, you basically said you're all in all of the above. You went, you didn't say, well, I'm going to talk to my doctor and then see what he says. You went, boom, you just shock and all basically. It was like the B-52s came out with the fighter jets, the army invaded, the Navy, the battleships were shooting off the coast. Like you just came in and let's go. Like I, I'm all of the above. Yes. That, that is a lesson learned right there. That is awesome. But let's not forget, there was a whole time of like dark, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening to me. Yep. But in the meantime, I was like, yeah, woe is me. But like as a mom, like you want to help your kids. So yeah. my thing is, as long as I'm taking action, I can't really think and dwell on stuff. <laughs> action. There's a great saying, action crushes fear. It's one of my favorite right. sayings. You're scared, but like when you're in the middle of acting, the, the fear, not saying it's not there anymore, but it goes so down. To, it's so manageable then. It's just so manageable. Let's just rewind a little bit more. That one point where you found out something was going on, but before you took action and you're probably in your head a lot. I know yeah. I would be in my head. What was that like when you're actually oh like, God. what was that it's, like? So that's a hard, it's a hard time because I didn't know what autism was. I didn't know. It was like people would whisper it. 
Mm-hmm. I don't remember what movie it is, but they're like, and he has cancer. And we met him in prison. Yeah. Whatever that movie was, I can't remember, but they would whisper that, or maybe it was a Saturday Night Live skit. I can't remember. But it was like, oh my God, maybe he has autism. So true, but so sad. Right? It's so true. Right yeah. It was, oh my gosh. And so I freaked out. I was like, I don't, I don't know this. What do I do? Chicken pox, you get him a vaccine or you put him in salt in calamine lotion or whatever. And if he has a ear infection, you get him antibiotics. But autism, like, how do you do that? And then there's the whole, like, how did he get it? Oh my gosh. Get it? Did I? Did you do it? Did something, something. you did go for a run at the wrong time or did you have a yeah. chicken at the wrong time? You know what I mean? Right? Like, you guys, like, exactly. oh, crazy. Did I not check the date of the milk in oh. the third week of my pregnancy? So there's so many things, but, and that's hard because you just, I don't know. It's like, you just don't know. Did I do it? Did I mess up my kid? I surely messed up my kid for so many different reasons. <laughs> but for this, it was my big first blow. I t- it took a while, but then I was, you know what? This is, what if we call it, I don't know, malaria, or even if we call it like a headache, like he's still going to be colicky and he's still going to have all these problems that he's been having. And I'm still going to have to deal with it. I'm going to forget that it's called autism. I'm going to forget that he has PDDNOS. I'm just going to work on how do I help him navigate Mm -hmm. as a two-year-old with the problems that he has. Again, that could be a sign of denial. And I'm like an ostrich with my head in the sand, but it was like my way of making it easier for me to process. Yeah. Yeah. So taking lots of action and then not worrying about the name of the diagnosis, but just like dealing with it. Cause the only person that was going to get any help was going to be me because the better he was, then I would be less stressed. So let's like figure it out. So you knew something was going on and we just covered the moment before you did something. You're, everyone's in their head. As you started taking action with the medical world, there's so many forms you got to fill out. I always find writing stuff down makes it real, right? Like you put, and this is so not as important as what we're talking about. I remember a few years back, I blew my knee out training jujitsu. And I went to the big academic medical center and filled 4,000 forms out to get my knee surgery, to fix my knee. And and then you had to put check or whatever it was like torn ACL. And I'm like, damn, I got a torn ACL. It wasn't real. Either I was, yeah, like I had to write it down. I had to say it verbally to the person doing my insurance verification. I'm like, yeah, Yeah. I blew my knee out. I have a torn ACL. I'm like, damn, saying that and hearing that. And what was it like for you saying it, writing it down? Like I I always find writing it down makes it real. What was your experience? So writing down the inabilities of a two-year-old is so devastating. It's horrible. Because one, you have to admit that there's a problem. Then you got to write it down. Then somebody's going to read it, assess it. And then they're either going to say, yes, this is a problem. Or you dummy, everybody does this and they make you feel stupid. So like any way you go, it's all bad. Yep. Some people who are better than me and grown more as humans might think that it's cathartic. (laughs) (laughs) But I couldn't fill out the first form until I could fill it out. You know, like I had to get there. But once I did it, then it was a lot of copy and pasting and it like hurt less every time. You you throw up a little bit less in your mouth every time. Absolutely. (laughs) Because you feel like, what did I do wrong to make this happen? Or or not what I did wrong, but what could I have done differently not to make this happen? You know what I mean? Is there something I could have done? Is there something I didn't do? There's something I did too much of? Like, and it's in your head. Oh, it's crazy. 
but there's more because you're like, why doesn't Joe's kid have this problem? Sure. Why do yeah. I have to deal with this? Yeah. He has two healthy, happy kids. And I, why can't I have that? The comparison and that's terrible. Or everybody else is out hanging out at the pool and I have to sit here and fill out these forms with me. So many different things. But I feel like once I did it the first time, then now I'm a pro. Like I can write, I'm a form addict. Like <laughs> you want me to fill out a form, I will bring it to you in spades. In fact, most recently, my son, he had to switch schools very yeah. late in the game. The new school, he was in public school. It was not a good fit. They were terrible, horrible, and awful, and anything else you can think of that's terrible. So in with five weeks left of school, I put him in a private school. Great. So mm-hmm. the, <laughs> the he started on like a Friday. And on Tuesday, I get this email in the afternoon. It was like, please fill out these forms for his first day of school. And I printed out it was 62 pages. Okay. So I was like, Dang. 62 pages. Are you kidding? 62 pages. Print it out. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. So first day of school, I hand Daniel the packet and he goes off. That afternoon we had a tour because we went without even having a tour of the school. So my husband and I go in and the first thing the head of the school says to me was, you are the first person to have submitted all the forms completed <laughs> on the first day we've never had that before Ever. in our life as the school like we <laughs> so this is what i'm talking about i can master a form you come to play i love it you come to play That's, that is awesome how about a few minutes ago you mentioned you did not find out there was an official diagnosis i think it was pdd nos um for Yep. For Daniel, until you were pregnant with Seth, your second, right? What's in your mind of, is this going to be part two? I would be so in my head with that. What what was your thought? Like your second pregnancy? Terrified doesn't even begin to touch what I was feeling. So on one hand, you're all smiles trying to like, oh, it's great. I'm so glad we're putting red blocks together. And on the other hand, I'm pregnant being like, oh my gosh, what if I have to do this again? So that was really scary. Yeah. But on the flip side, I was already way pregnant. He was coming. There was nothing I could do. This is why I feel like I was lucky in that I didn't really have a, not a lot of time to be in my head because one, I was so super busy trying to play with Daniel the right way with all the, how the therapists were telling me I have to do this and I have to do that. and blah, blah, blah. So I didn't have enough time to sit there and dwell on the whole Seth thing. But then at the same time, like it was always in the back of my head. But then once he was born, this poor kid was like the most poked at child ever because <laughs> I was like, Hey, are you going to have the same? Are you colicky? What's happening here? Do you see this? Are you answering my name? Can you do, you know, and it was, I don't know if I wanted to be set as an infant in this house. However, it was immediate that Seth and Daniel were so polar opposites, so different. And Seth had a different trajectory. So like where Daniel didn't have joint attention and joint attention is when two people look at the same item. Right. Mm. But I say to you, hey, look at this pen. And you would look at this pen. Daniel, I would say, hey, there's an airplane that he wouldn't look up. He wouldn't look at me. He wasn't. He's in his own little his lane with Seth. Sethy, look at me. He'd be like attention on you right away. And then he would respond to his name. He would turn pots and pans into instruments. He would, he just had a different sort of set of skills that we didn't see in Daniel until later. So 
We were pretty confident early on that Seth was not going to be on the spectrum. It is a spectrum. So maybe he is on the spectrum. I don't know. Everybody could be on the spectrum. I think we're all on the spectrum at some point. I think we're, everybody's on the spectrum. Right? Everyone has something they do that, you know what, that's not totally normal. And everyone's there. I think yeah. the whole world's there. But at uh, least I knew that he wasn't going to need as much help yeah. and therapy. Um, yeah. So that was reassuring, for sure. But he has his own issues. Not a perfect oh, child. Like we all do. Like we all do. I find this hard with, I'm just me, I think any parent finds this hard balancing attention with two, three, say healthy kids. But so when you have your oldest getting probably a lot more attention than the average oldest would get, how hard is it to balance giving one kid all the attention and still being there for the other one? Like how hard is that? Impossible. So hard. It's got to be so hard. First of all, safety first, right? So I wanted to make sure that Seth (laughs) wasn't hurt for attention. I just wanted to make sure he was safe. So I think he spent like the first year of his life in a bouncy chair on top of the dining room table. <laughs> Hi there, buddy. Yeah. You still doing okay? <laughs> yeah. Some water? Are you on some water? Yeah. So, so luckily when he's an infant, he doesn't care. Yeah. Then when he got a little older, so the, <laughs> again, I totally lucked out. This is just me. Seth started talking at one. I'm talking like full-blown sentences. Daniel didn't start talking until much later. Like Seth taught Daniel how to talk. It's just wow. like he started talking. So like you couldn't not pay him attention. But the good thing was it was different kind of attention. So like he wanted to talk to me, but I need to play with him. So I could talk, but I could also do both at the same time. But there is no way that Seth got nearly the same amount of attention, which is yeah. exactly why I try to give him more attention now. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But the thing with attention, though, is I always find that, like, my kids, so I'm a stay at home mom. I spend all my days, like, playing hard with my kids, not anymore because they're older, but like when they were little, like, I had teachers telling me that I had to play with my kids. Like, I had goals to set. Nobody played with their kids. Like, I played with my kids. It sounds really obnoxious, but let me tell you, I had homework. Yeah. You're all in. (laughs) But, My girlfriends would be like, I feel so bad. I'm working or I'm this, I'm that. I don't have enough time to spend with my kids. And I always joke and I was like, I spend every waking second with my children. And yet both of them will say, I don't spend enough time. So you just can't win. No, you can't win. It's almost like parenting. I found it's just my version or my idea. Like You just got to do the best possible job you can at the moment. Always keep learning and evolving, not be set in your ways. Evolve and grow and do things differently did today than you did yesterday. But know that you're not perfect and it, you're going to drop the ball at times and be kind to yourself because you're just doing the best you can. And it, sometimes it's appreciated. Sometimes it's not appreciated. Sometimes it may be appreciated a year down the road. We got to do the best we can. That's all we can do. Except for the fact that with my kid, every day had to be the same. Oh, wow. So talk right. about that. So what's that like? <laughs> So he's rigid. The spectrum kid. The routine. Yep. He wants every day to be exactly the same as the day before. So that's hard, right? Because you we have things to do. Like we don't go to the dentist every day, or we don't go to the park every day. We do different things. So that's a different level of patience that I had to, I don't know, find somewhere. And I think it's tricky because there's so many idiosyncrasies in my house that you don't know about, right? Because you probably don't have to create every day the same because you, this isn't one of the issues that your children face. And so if I have an invitation to go to a blank with bring the kids, I, my first instinct is to say, no, 
because mm-hmm. I know that it's going to be, the transitions are going to be hard. He's not going to know how to, so I want to say no. But on a social level, like I want to go out and see friends. So then I have to weigh all that in my head. And then I'll be like, if we do it, can we possibly do it at four? Because at this specific time, so like I have all these criteria that I have to meet to make sure that it's a success. So being friends with me at the time that my kids were little was very difficult because I was mm-hmm. a big old pain because I had certain restaurants I could go to, certain restaurants I couldn't, certain sounds that my kid could handle, certain stuff that he could And it's troublesome because some people are understanding and some people are not. And I think that once again, just with more people knowing kids on the spectrum and knowing that there are certain limitations to the way we can be so that you will have a good time, not just so that my family will have a good time. So we always try to make sure that we're like inobtrusive and try to have everybody have a good time. So that's hard. And I think that one lady who read my book said, she emailed me and she was like, listen, my nephew is on the spectrum. And I used to get annoyed because they always dictated where, what, and when we go. But now I understand and I have more grace and I am not mad about it anymore. But she was never mad about it, but she was always like, why do we have to do it that way? Why can't we go somewhere else? And I felt like that was really a wonderful comment that she made to me because that's really all we as parents in the spectrum ask for is just give us a little wiggle room and then we can work within that. Yeah. No, yeah. that that is a great w- level of empathy and understanding for someone that may be dealing with a child on the spectrum, a little wiggle room, empathy, understanding, flexibility. If you really want them there, then being a parent with a kid that needs a little more adaptability to their day or rigidity to their day, it, yeah. you got to bend that way or you can't expect them to come. You know what I mean? You can't right. expect them to do, right? That, right. And also don't give us a guilt trip if we say no. We are saying no, not because we don't want to hang out, but because we know that our presence is going to ruin it. Like it will be so unsuccessful that nobody will have a good time. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So how old is Daniel right now? He's going to be a junior in high school. Okay. So let's rewind a little bit to middle school. I found like just having two kids so far, three, two of them already floated through middle school. I find that a difficult transition where th- that's where they go from the cute little grade school kids, yeah. Santa Claus, all that stuff. And then they go into middle school and then the clicks form and then people get mean. And then people, all of a sudden you invite people to parties. They don't want to show up or the person you hung out with forever stops calling you out of the blue. And you know what I'm talking about? They're not sitting with people at lunch. You hear the stories. What was that like for a kid on the spectrum to go through middle school? That had to be really rough. So as a super hyper overprotective mom, I refused to let my kid be bullied. How do you do that? You control every aspect of his life. (laughs) You go to school with him, actually. No, I'm just kidding. So what we did was we put him in special schools, special education schools that really had small number of students and low student to teacher ratio. So each each teacher could easily look at maintain and manage five kids at a time. So there's like really no danger. So we searched and searched and searched and searched and found these private schools that did that. And so he went to one school until second grade. 
everything was fine because, you know, it's their kids are little and everybody's fine. Then you went to another school from third grade to eighth grade. And that school also was safe and fine and protected because we'd been there for a long time. We knew all the staff. We knew all the kids, small classrooms. I think his grade had 12 kids. Very protected. The only time that it became a major hassle was when I put him in public school. So for ninth grade, so middle school was, it was fine. He had his regular attitude and all that kind of stuff that the kids go through. But in terms of social interactions, which I think is what you're asking me, it was not that, not that difficult because he always had the same friends. But then when I put him in high school, our public high school had a program called the ARS program and it's for autism resources services. So our school has 600 kids in each grade, nine. So that's 2,400 kids in the whole school. Within that school, there's a program called ARS. That is the program we chose for our son. And that was perfect for COVID, right? There were no extracurricular activities. We, it, oh, I'm sorry. And when he started high school, it was the year of COVID. Yep. So when, you know, so he did everything online and he met his like 10 classmates and they became buddies virtually and all was great. So sophomore year, which was this year, he went to school in person, all the extracurriculars opened up. He would go to his ARS classes and then he would go to the typical school section for electives and whatever. So Daniel is a fan. He loves acting and he wanted to check out the rest of the school. One of the reasons why he wanted a public school was because a lot of the special education schools are smaller, so they don't have the opportunities outside of academics. So he wanted to try public school because we knew there was this program and then we knew we had extra. So he did theater and the first show was great. The second show, amazing. But by the third show, it was horrible because the kids were not, they bullied him and they basically didn't want him around. They couldn't understand his differences. And unfortunately, in this particular public school, in a school that has a program with needs, with kids on the spectrum, I had no idea. Once you left that program, nobody knew how to deal with a kid like Daniel. And mm. when I say nobody, teachers, security, classmates, it was the principal, soup to nuts, a disaster. And it was such a nightmare. And they were so mean to him and they couldn't handle a kid that just wanted to be their friend but didn't know how they mm. couldn't. And there's so many ways to handle that before you get to a group of kids screaming at him at the same time, recording it and saying, we don't want you. You're a stalker. All this horrible stuff, like actually bullying, spreading rumors about him. There's so many things that could have happened before it got that far. But unfortunately, were as we as a society are not ready and this school was not prepared. Had I known any of this, I would have told Daniel to stay within his program, but I didn't know. The school didn't know because I guess, I don't know, was he the first kid to ever venture out? I have no idea. It was a cluster and we pulled him immediately. And like I said, we put him in this new school and it was a horrible experience for everybody in our family because I've never experienced bullying before like this, but like it affects the mom, the mm -hmm. dad. Yeah. The kid, the siblings, it affects everybody. Like everybody. We're, we're talking, we can't sleep, we can't eat. We're like constantly thinking about it, trying to forget about it, trying yep. to be happy for our kids, but so ragey, angry. Anyway, so I would say it was a disaster for my poor kid, but he's 
bouncing back and summer is here and we're all we're back in the grind and mm-hmm. figuring it out. And like I said, I'm like a big action taker because if I dwell, it's a problem for me. Yeah. So I'm like denial city and let's find a new school and let's figure it out. But yeah, so society, socially, we're just not there. And that's like my big message. That's why I'm writing this book because I feel like it doesn't need to be like this. Yeah. There are so many kids that are different and there are so many things that could be done. And I don't, know what the specific answers are but we at least have to have a conversation about it right like Mm. you can't have a kid that's two years old and that be the first time that you hear about autism they cannot be the answer anymore and now that there's one in every 50 kids that are diagnosed as being on the spectrum that means everybody's going to know somebody that's on the spectrum so I guess my thing is rather than wait for someone that you care about fully or treated poorly, which is when you're going to get ragey and take action, let's do it preventatively. And so I feel like there's so many small things we could do. There's big things we can do, but we have to do something. You said it starts with a conversation. It definitely starts with a conversation, but like some basic life skills, like empathy, seeing things through other people's eyes. and, And it starts with kindness. Like it's not hard to be kind. It, it's free. Kindness is free. Yeah. Understanding's free. Look at it through someone's eyes. And it's so hard to do that when you're in middle school, when you're t- 12, 13, 14 years old. Like that's just not your natural default. But man, that's, that is tough. Do you remember the moment when you decided, you know what? I got to write a book about this. Do you remember that? You had all these stories and you had all these experiences. At what point did you say, you know what? I'm going to share this with the world. What was that moment? Okay. This is why I think this is so funny. Like I'm literally just Corey, no last name. I don't have a plan. I'm not like this amazing human (laughs) that wants to do good in the world. Everything just happened. I have a friend and she wrote a book and I was like, you wrote a book. That's like the coolest thing ever. And she's like, you can write a book. And I was like, I can't do that. And then I like was introduced to her publisher and they were like, put together some words, see what happens. And I put together like 20,000 words and I sent it along and they were like, this could actually be a book if you did da, 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 move this here or whatever Couple edits, yeah. and write more. So I was like, okay. And then I put, I started with the book and then I started talking to Daniel about it. And I was like, Hey, so I really wanted to write this book because I feel like it might help kids on the spectrum. If more people know about it, what do you think? And he was like, well, I don't really know if I want my, I don't know. And then he's like, it's going to make people nicer to kids like me, then do it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it now. And if you read the beginning of the book, Daniel basically canceled my book in the middle because he found out that I wrote about some of his major tantrums. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, this can't be in the book. And I was like, oh, okay. So then I had to rip out a whole bunch. How much editorial say did Daniel have? He had all the say. That's awesome. Yeah, he can't. So he can't. So basically you wrote. And then you shared it with him and then he let you share what he was comfortable with, basically. Actually, I will tell you a story that makes me look like the worst human being ever, but it is the truth. And I am a really horrible mom. So basically what happened was Daniel and I were in the kitchen and we were fighting about, I don't know, Kim. Hey, honey, if you're going to ask me to do something, you have to ask me nicely. Don't be a joke about it or something stupid like that. And then my husband comes downstairs and he's like, what's all this fuss? And I was like, oh, Daniel and I are just fighting about blah, blah, blah. And my husband was like, "Court." Instead of writing the book about autism, you should write a musical about autism. And I was like, oh my God, 
that would be hysterical. Now, a normal person would have left it there, but then I decided to start making up songs, singing, dancing, talking about all the crazy tantrums that he had and whatever. So then Daniel was like, I heard you. I know what you're doing. You're talking about me. And if you tell anybody those stories, la, la, la. And again, a nice person would have been like, okay, you're right. This is so wrong. I shouldn't do this because I'm singing and dancing about stories of you. But I was like, enter stage left, autistic teen, flailing his arms, walking in now, having a fit, you know, stage directing like a horrible human. He came in and he was like, mom. <laughs> This is kind of how it goes in my house. Wow. And he was like, you can't say that. You can't say these stories. And I was like, but I wrote some of them in the book. And he's like, you did what? <laughs> I wrote about some of your tantrums. Then he said, you can't. It's over. You can't write this book. If you're going to ruin my life by making up these songs and dancing in the kitchen, I'm going to ruin your life by saying you cannot write this book. And I felt these are my stories, but they're also his stories. Sure. And so in a moment of maturity, which I seldom have, I was like, this is not okay. And if he's not okay with his stories, then I can't do it. So I called the editor and I was like, hey, I'm really sorry. I'm not doing this anymore because my poor kid can't handle it. And it's his life, right? Yeah. And she was like, I have a great idea. Why don't you change your name and call yourself something else and him something else? I was like, oh, that's a great idea. Hey, Daniel, what do you think about being a different name? And I'll be Mrs. White. And he was like, no, I'm going to ruin your life. And no, your stories can't be out. And my stories will still be out there, whoever the name is or whatever. And so I said, okay, fine. That's fine. You know what? You're right. And so we stopped. And then everybody like calmed down and I stopped singing and dancing and being a jerk. And I sat down with Daniel and I was like, I really do feel like if there is a book out there that talks about autism, it will help people. I said, I completely understand. You don't want this stuff out there. And I'm not out to embarrass you whatsoever. This isn't about me and mommy being mean and writing like an expose. It's just about me trying to help people. And so whatever you don't like, we'll take out. So we went through chapter by chapter and we like took out this and we took out that. We took out a lot of stuff that he didn't want in the book. And then some of the stuff he kept in, which I thought was hysterical. Like I didn't know what the rule was because like some of it was in and some of it was out. And then if I added anything, I would say, hey, this is a section about blank. Do you care? And he'll be like, no, or yes. Or, so yeah, he had a lot of editorial control. I mean, it is his life and it's his story. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. That is... Uh, oh yeah, I, that I'm a jerk. I'm a horrible No, it's so real <laughs> and it's so honest. The whole... Like, this big picture, why I love doing this podcast is to talk to interesting people like you and have real conversations. And that's about as real and as interesting as you can get. So thank you. How about you mentioned your husband, just in general, like the divorce rate for everybody in the world is probably like a 50%. How do couples with special needs kids, I can't imagine the pressure that would be on a relationship like that. What type of effect did the journey with Daniel have on your marriage from your perspective that wouldn't be there if he wasn't on the spectrum? Oh my gosh. Okay. I guess I'll never know. Like, I feel like maybe we'd have other problems. Like maybe okay. we would think that the fact that he wasn't an ace soccer star and was only D3 instead of D1 was the mm. end all be all. And that was like the pressure point of our marriage. Like, sure. we'll never. Yeah. I do think that it would be different in that our conversations would maybe be about other things. But again, all parents talk about their kids, but we were just lucky in that he was like, Greg and I have our roles and like, I do my thing and he does his thing. And it's, there's like a level of trust in the decisions that each other makes. 
So there's not that much second guessing. I think that there's a lot of dissonance in couples because one person thinks that there's a problem and the other person thinks that there isn't a problem. Or one person thinks the kid needs therapy and the other kid thinks that it's, the other parent thinks it's too expensive or it's a financial strain on the family and there's priorities and all that. It, we've just been very lucky in that we have been on the same page or we have gotten to the same place. Part of it is because I'm super bossy and it's like I lay down the law and I'm like, he needs this. And Greg's like, yes, ma'am. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But like part of it is because like it makes sense. You know, we're like, he needs therapy and okay, if he needs therapy, then let's do it. He needs this school. Okay. Did you look at other schools? Yes, I did. Let's look at the, I'm like, these are the top two. We look at the top two. We make the decision together. I, again, it's more like just luck in that, I happen to have married a person that's, that respects my decisions and I respect his decisions and we're not like second guessing each other. And that's been really, I think, had he had any other issues that would have been helpful too. Absolutely. That's great. Moving on here to be respectful of your time. Just want to switch over to the part of the interview we call share your secrets. So our guests can get to know you a little bit more as a person with all you got going on. With everything from writing the book to your kids, your family, when you need to clear your mind and recharge your body, what do you do? Oh, that's such a great question. Okay. I do a bunch of things. I like to play with my dog, Lucky, who's like the best best therapy ever. I like to do a thousand piece puzzles. I like to hang out with my friends, but I also like to be alone. So it's, I have a plan for every sort of mood I'm in. And sometimes I want to just sit by myself. Sometimes I want to make a plan to see friends. So I guess it all depends. I don't have a specific, I used to go run, but then it's hot here in DC. I can't run every day. Also, because I'm lazy now. So I think that I have lots of different things that I like to do. I like to watch 50-minute crime shows because I like the beginning and the end and how there's closure and that makes me very happy. I like to play on my Instagram and make stupid reels and make people laugh. So yeah, I have a lot of different things that I do to clear my head and pick me up. You wrote a book. You're an author. Most authors are big readers. What book influenced your life or changed your mind more than any other? Do you have a favorite book? Okay. I knew you were going to ask me this because <laughs> I've been listening to you okay. and I have Thank you. three on my list uh-huh. and I don't know if I'm allowed to say three, but I have three. Give me all three. Love it. Okay. The first one was the loving push by Temple Grandin. Okay. That one sent me into a terror spiral. Okay. I read this book and I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to be the worst mother. And I'm never going to be able to get my kid. I'm going to transform my basement into an apartment. So that was a terrifying thing. And that was also another reason why I wrote my book, because I wanted people to know that there were weird, average humans, just quarries out there doing it. And we're not succeeding. We're not failing. We're just doing fine. So I wanted to like bring that out there. Another book that changed me, which is hysterical because Craig always says, I don't know why you always mention that as one of your books, because I swear when you were reading that, you were like going crazy. <laughs> it was The Mindset by Carol Dweck. How great is that book? Mindset, and I read that book and I was like, 
how do I create growth mindset in my children? And I like obsessed about it. And apparently I drove Greg. And so that was an interesting, I actually tried to reach out to her to get a quote for my book, but she's very busy. And the last book was... (laughs) It's funny. Is the book by Kondo Mark, how the joy of simplifying your life, the joy of sparking joy. Yeah, absolutely. That book also changed my life because I decided I was Kondo Mari. And I I basically Kondo my whole entire house. Just decluttered out, threw everything away, everything on the ground, everything out in the middle of the floor. Does this bring joy? Does this spark joy? (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. In or out? Even if it did spring joy, I was like, out, everything's gone. See ya. So that was also quite life-changing in that my family, all of them were like, where is the blank? Why do you keep moving everything? <laughs> so those three were like the most um, life-changing to me in terms of books. That's the best list I think anyone's ever given me on the podcast. The Loving okay. Push, I've never heard of. We got to look that one up. Mindset from Kyle Dweck. That is just a great book. It's basically talent might be innate, but that skill crushes talent. And it's like, it's just not you're smart. You, you get good grades because you work hard. Like it's the effort. And then the Kondo the Mari book, I think the, life, the Tidying Up book was one. And then Spark Joy was two. And there was like, the workplace one's the third one. My wife and I both read the first one. People thought we'll come to our house, thought something was wrong. We gave everything away in a two-month span. Like you come to our house and we have some stuff, but people come, you have three kids that live here. Like people come in our house, like, where's your stuff? Like they come into our garage. It's like, where's your boxes and bins and bags? Barring the holiday decorations, there's nothing in a box in our house. Everything else is gone. Like we use it or it's gone. Like it, it's you just, were able to maintain it. That's amazing. I uh, have adapted yeah. to it. And I'm, I now call it Corey Mori. What's <laughs> next? Corey Mori. That's awesome. No, thanks for sharing that. How about what advice would you have okay. for that mom or dad who maybe has a one-year-old, just had a baby and maybe something's off or they think something's going on or maybe they just got a diagnosis. Maybe it's unspecified or maybe it's autism. Maybe they're on the spectrum. What advice would you have for that parent? Okay. My advice for that parent would obviously be to be, go get my book and read it cover to cover. No, (laughs) I'm joking. I think what I would say is don't dwell on the name of the diagnosis so much. I think that helped me a lot. Figure out what it is that's troubling you with your child and then focus on that. Because Mm -hmm. I think we all get caught up on labels. And I think that some people don't want to share their kids on the spectrum. Some people don't tell their kids. Some kids Mm -hmm. don't know. It, okay, that's fine. I have no interest in anybody else's life and their decisions. I only care about what we do in our house. And so I feel like that sounds cold. I don't judge. That's what I'm trying to say. Sure, is no judgment. Yep, whatever you want to do. But like at the end of the day, there are certain things that you have to deal with. And if your kid's on the spectrum and he is um, constantly sliding the door open and closed, and that's something that he likes to do, all right, fine. Don't worry about the fact that he's autistic. Let's figure out how to change that behavior or figure out how to deal with that behavior, however you want to deal with it. And I think that is, for me, what kind of helped me with my mindset. And then the other thing is to reach out, I think, find people like you. I hated going anywhere because when I first started making friends with kids, with babies, everybody had typical babies except for me. And that's just like the universe that I landed in. Not only when I got Daniel into the special education schools did I find parents that had tricky kids. And that was when my leg opened up because I could ask, what have you tried for your kid that 
doesn't eat any food. What do you, you tried for your, and then they would in turn be like, listen, don't worry that he doesn't eat all this food. My kid can't walk barefoot on grass. Do you know how much grass is out there? And I feel like that sort of helps a lot just to be able to have someone to nod your head and be like, oh my God, yeah. thank you for telling me that. I understand it. Daniel used to do this really weird thing called pocketing. Okay. And he would leave food in between his teeth and his cheek all day. Just eat. And I thought he was eating, but he was, it's called pocketing. I, who knew? Like I never did. <laughs> I never knew anybody else that pocketed. And then with bath time, I would go and clean it out. It was disgusting. It was when he was a baby. But later in life, I was talking to this woman and I think he was in eighth grade when I finally met a person whose kid pocketed. Wow. And that made me feel good. Like in that moment, I was like, I love you. Can we be best friends? Yeah. It's a support <laughs> set. I did that. You need a support system. You need to go out and find like-minded people that, that maybe are on the same journey as you. It's the some point we're on the journey with you and you connect with them. You share best practices. You talk, you empathize with each other, help each other out. You're, you're on the journey together, right? And, awesome. and, and don't be ashamed or anything or embarrassed if you don't want to share. I know plenty of people that have kids that are tricky or quirky or spectrum and they don't want to say a word about it. And that is totally fine because you want to keep your life private. It's your life. You don't have to share anything. Yeah. I just happen to be a, an open book. Like I'm an overshare, right? Cause mm -hmm. I want to know how other people have dealt with stuff and I want to hear and learn so that I don't make that mistake or that I do that because it was a great idea. I also feel like very recently a friend of mine told me, that she had a kid who isn't on the spectrum, but was having a really hard time in mm. high school. And she didn't know what to do about it, but she also had no one to talk to about it. And then I happened to be talking about my kid on the spectrum, having been bullied and whatever. And oh my gosh, she does so hard. And she said, if you had never told me that story, I couldn't have opened up to you about my kid and what was going on. So I feel like sometimes it's for the other person that you're sharing because then they feel like it's okay to unload on you and see that they're not alone. Like you never know what the other person's going through and it goes both ways. Like sometimes I just don't say a word because mm -hmm. I don't want to, and I'm not in the mood, but a lot, oftentimes when I do share, I have found that other people have reached out to me and responded positively. Yeah. Is that one that you said you have no idea what other people are going through? There's that great saying, I forget who said it. It's everyone's fighting a battle we know nothing about. Everyone's fighting a battle in their mind that we're not aware of. So sometimes where if someone's rude or someone does something to you or flippant to you or unkind, maybe it has nothing to do with you. It's just something else that it's just, you're just in the flow that day and you're getting, you're not getting the best version of them. That's two questions. This is great. I have the best story about that. Go ahead. I don't know. No. Maybe it's too long. Maybe I'm taking too much of your time. So the whole thing about not knowing what the other person's going through. And I only tell you this because you know, some of the players, when I first joined, when I first went to my very first mother's group, okay. My mother's thing, I was nursing Daniel and I was really bad at nursing. Okay. And I was sitting down next to this woman that I'd never met before. Okay. I sat down next to her in a wooden chair. She was sitting in a wooden chair. She had her baby. We'd never met. I introduced myself. I said, hi, I'm Corey. And she said, hi, I'm blank. And we were chatting and she seemed like this great person, but I was really having a hard time nursing. And there was a sofa right over there. And so there was another woman over there and she 
had space next to her. So I turned to this person and I said, this has nothing to do with you. I enjoyed our chat, but I'm going to sit over there because there's a sofa and I can nurse better. Okay. So I sat over there. Fast forward five, 10 years. This person who sat next to me ends up being my very best friend. Okay. In the universe. She tells me that she, when I went and rebuffed her and I sat over there, that night she went home and she was so upset because going to that meeting was such a, she didn't want to go. She didn't, she's a new mom. She didn't know how to deal with other people. And like the first person that she spoke to moved away from her. And that me unintentionally sent this message of like, I hate you to her. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas I was just going over to nurse on a sofa. Yeah. Yeah. You just want to go. Yeah. Yeah. We laugh about it, but like, the only saving grace, the only reason why we're friends is because I actually said those words out loud, which I don't know why I said, I'm like, I'm going to go over there because it's easier to nurse on a sofa than on a chair. And so now she's like, had you never said that to me, we would have never been friends. Thank you. That's right. You have no idea what's going through people's minds. And and communication is better than non-communication, like to express what you're thinking. And sometimes it's so hard to just to get it out there or you you assume that they know, or you assume they're not going to take offense. No, I over-communicate. That's a great, Last two questions. If you could have everyone listening, just take one lesson, one bullet point away from everything we discussed, what would it be? That nobody intentionally is trying to make you feel uncomfortable. So if somebody just said that to me the other day, and I thought that was amazing. Like my, if somebody's on the spectrum and they're bothering you, it is not their intention to bother you. They're not out to bother you. Whatever they're doing is bothering you, but it's not their intention to bother you. Yep. So be nice. Like I feel, or be neutral because if you're neutral, you're not being mean. Yep. That's <laughs> so great. Be yep. nice or neutral. <laughs> yep. Be kind, be nice. And if you can't be kind and nice, at least be neutral. Don't be a jerk. Total. Awesome. Corey, last question. Okay. If, you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body. What would that quote or motto say? So again, I feel like I've cheated because I knew you were going to ask that question again, because I was binge listening and I'm going to be a jerk. And I'm going to tell you that it wouldn't be a saying and it wouldn't be a quote. And I wouldn't get a tattoo because that's the sign of the Yakuza in Japan. But for the interest of this answer, if I were to get a tattoo, it would be of Chili Willy the Penguin. Okay. Chili Willy the Penguin. Do you remember him from the little cartoons on Saturday mornings? I do little- remember a Chili Willy. I forget what his saying was, though. I do remember. No, he doesn't have a saying. I would just have Chili Willy the Penguin tattooed, not a saying, because he's little and he's super cute. But he made such an impression on me. And I feel you can, every small thing that you do can make such an impression on somebody. And I feel like he, I don't know, he represents that in my mind somehow. And if it had to be a word and if it had to be a phrase, I guess it would have to be, if you're in a fight, hit first and hit hard. Wow. That is dropping (laughs) the mic. If you're in a fight, hit first and hit hard. Knock him out. And knock him out. Wow. So we're going to go somewhere between Chili Willie, who's little cute, but is impactful. 
But like, then, look, I know you wanted a quote, but like, I'm really going to get a tattoo. I wouldn't get a quote. I would get chili. And then, but if you got that hit first, hit hard, if you're in a fight, you'd be in the Yakuza. So Corey Asano, uh, first off, I think that is about as good as a spot to any to wrap this up. Thank you for joining us. It has been an honor to speak with you. Thank you for sharing your story with you, Daniel, Seth, your husband, Greg, and Lucky the dog. Nothing but success. And appreciate you. Thanks for coming on the show. So fun. If people are looking for you and your book online, where can we find you? So I usually hang out on Instagram because I'm a teenager and I like to post pictures. Everything is my name. So it's Corey Yasuno, K-U-R-I-Y-A-S-U-N-O. And at Corey Yasuno on Instagram, at CoreyYasuno.com is my website. And that's where you can get the book. You can see the podcasts. I think it's the same on Facebook, everywhere. It's just my name. And I would love to hear from anybody who has any questions or wants to chat or thinks my tattoo is a really bad idea. <laughs> CoreyAsuno.com. I will post all these in the show notes. I'll put your website on, your Instagram handle, Facebook. I'll even put the Amazon link on Amazon. Great reviews. And uh, thank you for sharing your story. I know you say awareness is not enough, but I know it starts with awareness. And I think you really gave people a place to go to, to get some answers, to get some help, to empower them, to move their process forward wherever they are in their journey. So Corey, thank you and uh, wish you nothing but success. Thank you. I love your podcast. I'm telling you, I've been binge listening to it. All the people that you get are so interesting. I'm so excited to be in this group. It's so fun. I love the question. I know I cheated because I knew some of them were coming up. Thank you. Take care. Bye.